Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 364 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, Moonwalk 2. The astronauts woke up early about 8 o'clock Houston time, only to find that there were some pretty serious communications problems going on. Then Charlie got on the comm and mistakenly identified himself as Apollo 15. Hello, Houston 15, over. Good morning, Charlie. How are you? I guess it's 16. Okay, uh, Charlie, I guess the biomed looked good. How you feel this morning? Uh, feel great. Uh, why don't you have the doctor tell me how much they think I slept? Yes, they think you slept six hours. Okay, fine. Uh, I was going to say seven. Uh, Uh, 
With only two meals a day, NASA made sure the crew had plenty to eat. They continued chatting and completing their household chores. Tony England began describing the EVA plan for the day when suddenly communication went from bad to worse. A complete calm blackout with Houston. Then, surprisingly, an Australian accent came over the line. It was John Saxon, the operations manager at Honeysuckle. In case you didn't understand that, John said, have a swan for us. A swan lager is a West Australian beer. The astronauts continued their conversation with Australia, thanking them for their help. John and Charlie enjoyed their brief conversation with the Australians, and when they got back to Houston, there were a couple of cases of Australian swan beer waiting in their garages. Once calm with Houston was returned, they finished reviewing the second moonwalk, and since John and Charlie had been finding different type rocks than they had expected, the geology science team decided they would modify their procedures. The destinations would be the same, 
but the procedures at each stop would be different. They had expected to find volcanic rock on their excursions. Fiscus basalt in the mountainous area, which they called Descartes, and less viscous material on the Cayley Plain. The other Apollo flights had collected mostly volcanic samples, so the Apollo 16 moonwalkers expected to find the same and were surprised when on the first EVA they found very little volcanic material. Most of the rocks that they collected were brecious, fragments of rocks encased in a fine-grained matrix. A majority had a whitish-gray matrix with black inclusions. Some were glass-covered, the glass probably forming from rocks that had melted during meteorite impact, and these were black. Others were almost pure white and very friable or crumbly. The question remained, had the highlands been formed by eons of cosmic bombardment instead of volcanic activity. This cruise EVA to the highlands would be the only Apollo excursion to this type of terrain, and the geologists were hopeful it would help solve the mystery of the early formation of the moon. Their major objective was to go south to Stone Mountain, climbing the mountain almost to the summit to a place called Cinco Craters, about four kilometers away. Ken had noticed from orbit several benches or levels of the mountain that ran eastward, and John and Charlie were to stop and collect samples on three of these benches. These would become geology stations four, five, and six. It was believed that rocks on Stone Mountain would be different from those at Cayley Plain. Once they finished sampling on Stone Mountain, they would drive westward toward South Ray Crater along a place called Survey Ridge, getting as close to South Ray as the terrain would allow. They couldn't go all the way to South Ray. It was eight miles away, which was out of range. The crew was to try to find some of the dark ray material that had come out of the crater. Then they would return to the lunar module, sampling as they drove, bringing them back about seven hours after they started. Next, the crew rapidly ate their breakfast and suited up. With all the dust on them, putting on their suits, gloves, and helmets proved a little troublesome, but they were anxious to get out there again, and their egress from the lunar module went smoothly. Once on the surface, they loaded up and headed out. It was easier driving on the second EVA, going cross-sun rather than heading into it, as on their first EVA return. John was really driving fast, about 10 kilometers per hour, and they were bucking and rocking and bouncing as they crossed the lunar surface. The soil was loosely compacted and looked like a freshly plowed field that had been raked smooth and rained on. Of course, there was no rain on the moon. Initially, it was a smoother terrain than the day before. But, 
As they got farther away, the surface got rougher and rougher. There were more rocks and more craters. On their way to Station 4, the rover's route crossed several ridges, including Survey Ridge, and it was exciting. The vehicle's suspension system handled well going in and out of a number of small, shallow craters pervading the moonscape. Strewn across Survey Ridge were lots and lots of large blocks. The rays they were traversing turned out to be much blockier than the surface near the lunar module. It didn't take a geologist to surmise that these blocks had in fact been sprayed out by the huge south ray impact. At the wheel of the rover, John had to remind Charlie not to bump his arm, because when he did, John came close to driving into one of the blocks. That needed to be avoided at all cost, or they would risk damaging the rover, and maybe themselves too. John also had to make sure not to go into the areas where blocks covered 40 to 50 percent of the ground. Most of the blocks were a meter in diameter, with some as big as three meters. After this point, John never went over seven to eight kilometers per hour, not even down Survey Ridge. As they continued along the eastern end of Survey, on the way to Stone Mountain, they were pointed almost directly at South Ray Crater. The dark material was all around them. Boy, you just can't believe the blocks, Houston, exclaimed John. John and Charlie were afraid they would be stuck there all day, so they looked for a way out of the ray. Houston, the best idea I can give you of what this looks like is it looks like about uh, halfway up to, uh, to that crater that we went to out of the Nevada test site. Man, I tell you, I've never seen so many blocks in my life. Okay, sounds like that was a good exercise then. Good exercise in driving. Oh, that was a steady. That hit on the floorboard, that's okay. Well, been getting dust on my helmet. Charlie was having a ball, but they were concerned about hitting a big rock and smashing the radio and TV control, especially since they were mounted on the right of the front bumper. Hey, that was super. That wheel just left the ground. Is the rock just right out there, Ron? I love it. It's great. Eight clicks, Tony. We got up to 12 there once. We're at 355 at uh, 2.8. Still have uh, Crown and uh, CCOE in, in sight. Sounds like you're really making money there. And we got John and Charlie continued to push, trying not to get behind schedule. It was up and down slopes, hitting bumps and dust flying everywhere. They finally arrived at the base of Stone Mountain and began climbing. From the slope, they had a tremendous view of South Ray Crater, 
It was just spectacular, almost pure white, glistening with white rays emanating from the center. And there's baby ray, John, Charlie exclaimed. On the flank of South Ray was a crater called Baby Ray. It was unique because it had black sides instead of white, like a little black dollop on the flank of this tremendous crater. And we're going up a steep, steep slope, John. I'll tell you. We believe you, Charlie. It was a steep climb now as they pointed towards Cinco Craters. Now they could readily see the location of Station 4, a spot near the Cinco Crater some 150 meters above where the lunar module had landed and the highest point they would reach on Stone Mountain. While going up, it was hard to determine the hill's steepness. The pitch meter on the rover, which only went as high as 20% grade, failed off-scale. John guessed that they were at at least 22% up that hill. In fact, at one point, the pitch indicator actually fell off, so they had to make eyeball estimates. The five craters came into view, and they started looking for a good place to park. Can you imagine being the only vehicle on the lunar surface and not finding a decent parking place? But the terrain was rough and steep and John didn't trust the brakes on the rover. If they failed, it would be rolling down the hill without them. As they were settling into park, Houston called. Hey, fellas, uh, Ken was just flying over and he saw a flash on the side of Descartes. He probably got a glint off you. Yep, that's us. Man, those mirrors are dusty. It is believed that Ken might have seen the sun gleaming off the rover's battery mirrors. Ken was 60 nautical miles above, and this was the only time he saw them during the lunar stay. Of course, Capcom kept him informed of the crew's whereabouts and their comments of the terrain in order to coordinate both efforts. Ken had requested a full schedule in order to reap as much scientific harvest as possible. He was really keeping busy with his on-orbit science experiments and picture-taking. He had planned so many projects to work on that occasionally he had to be reminded to eat. The view from Stone Mountain was almost unbelievable. The sharp contrast of gray lunar surface and the blackness of space and out in the middle of the valley was Orion, an oasis of color on the gray terrain. From this point, they could see South Ray, North Ray, and the landing site. They had no difficulty at all identifying and tracing the ray they had just sampled out over the plain and up onto the rim of South Ray Crater. But most spectacular of all was the slope they had just climbed about 22 degrees at points. If they took a serious fall, they would go tumbling down the mountain all the way to the bottom without stopping. Okay, got to this place. Okay, I'm coming around to get the 500. Tony, I, you just can't believe it. You just can't believe this. Uh, there's a ray, uh, this view. 
You can see the lunar module. You can see North Ray with boulders on the south uh, west side and where Station 12 is. There's one huge boulder that's going to be just great. It looks like we can get up there, and there's a great ray pattern going up the side of Smoky Mountain from uh, from North uh, from North Ray. Sounds fantastic. That 500 millimeter should do a job for us. Oh, I hope so. I just got to get a picture with the 500 of the old Orion sitting out there. Just spectacular. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of North Ray, Tony. Both of these rocks have a whitish uh, gas to them, Houston, but... Uh... Okay, Tony, uh, I'm up to frame count 90 on the magazine Lima. Okay. Wow, what a place. What a view, isn't it, John? It's absolutely unreal. We don't really come up here, uh, Tony. It's just spectacular. I've got, I have never seen it. All I can say is spectacular, and I know you all are sick of that word, but that, my vocabulary is so limited. Oh, we're down there okay, speaking down here. Okay, the description is... Can you guys see how uh, really spectacular the view is? We sure can. On the slopes, the astronauts' big boots sank in the moon dust about 10 centimeters. As they were taking pictures and gathering samples, Charlie measured the compactness of the soil with a penetrometer. Walking around on this slope was like climbing a steep sand dune. The soil was very loose and as they would climb, they would slide backwards in the soft dust. The best way to go up was to hop, like a jackrabbit. Otherwise, they moved around on the hillside with relative ease and little fear of falling. When they stood facing the slope, they leaned on their tools. They were confident enough in their ability to get up even while on a slope that they knelt down to pick up many of their samples. Charlie's mind was filled with the thrill of being there and the awesome beauty. He knew it was a hostile environment, that they were a long five kilometers from the lunar module, and that he could roll down the mountain and split open his suit. Yet, he didn't think about those things at all. It was like a Sunday afternoon hike, rather than a dangerous adventure that could be fatal with one breakdown of the equipment. John and Charlie collected a variety of samples, but dust covered everything, making it difficult to describe what they were finding. They had spent years on their geology training, learning to describe and identify rocks, now they were getting frustrated with all the dust and seeming lack of variety. Really, all they had to do was pick up one of each color, gray, black, and white. The moonwalkers were disappointed that they found no signs of volcanic activity, since all the planetary geologists assured them they would find it there. It started to look 
like the hills in this region, were all composed of ejecta from ancient impacts. They did take some comfort in knowing that even the breccias they were collecting would give the scientific community some detailed information about how impacts, rather than volcanoes, had shaped the moon's central highlands. Charlie was scheduled to take a core sample at Station 4. The first 20 inches went in easily. The soil was so loose all he had to do was push it in. Then, as he hammered the next 20 inches to pass the time, he sang a song. Okay, Tony, I'm to the uh, 2 o'clock, uh, 2.30 position of the rover. And I'm going to start with this double core. Got it assembled. Okay, I pushed it in. Almost up. Well, I did. I got it in up to the, almost to the top of uh, the uh, first stem by pushing it in. Okay, I understand. There comes your seven-footer across, son. I'll get you a locator. I'm just going to get you a locator now that I'm down a slope. It won't be in the ground. Procedurally, that's a little wrong, but I'll do it anyway. That's okay. Save me some work. Uh, I've been hammering on the rim. Okay, Tony, about uh, halfway up the second one, I get... It's getting a little harder, but it's going on in. Okay. Maybe we're getting down to Descartes there. Huh? That might be. Charlie figured he must have looked like a two-year-old whacking the handle of that core. The hammer kept bouncing around and twisting in his hand. He even dropped it a few times. The hammer just didn't seem to fit his glove well. And when the hammer flipped out and dropped, he would have to go back and get another tool to retrieve it because he couldn't bend over well enough to pick it up. Charlie was now convinced that Station 4 had the most difficult working conditions for their entire stay. The slope was very steep and he got tired climbing up and down gathering rocks, and doing the experiments. Plus, they had to avoid falling into the craters or down the hill. Charlie still managed to fall down five times at Station 4. The astronauts really earned their pay at this first stop. With the work finally complete at Station 4, it was time to move on to Station 5. Okay, we're headed 354 and going... That thing's taking a straight for the limb, John. Down slope is easy. Long as the brakes hold out. Yeah, it's easy, Charlie. You got the brakes on? Partially. Isn't that something? Have to. Yeah. The half-kilometer trip to Station 5 was all down slope, so they had to use the rover's brakes constantly. Yeah, we're going back down our tracks, Tony. Only way to fly, Tony. I understand. Charlie, you said you were going to see some other tracks on the moon. Yeah. No wonder we broke the pitch meter. This is where we did. Yeah. <laughs> Look 
look at this baby. I really, I'm really getting confident in it now. It's really humming like a kid. Oh, this machine is yeah. Probably a good idea. You couldn't see how steep it was going up. Okay, I've got the power off and we're making 10 kilometers an hour. Just falling down our own tracks. For Station 5, the next stop on the slope of Stone Mountain, the astronauts look for a primary crater, a crater made by a direct hit from a meteorite. They wanted to find some samples of the Descartes rock of which Stone Mountain was made. The rock from the earlier stop, they believed, had all been thrown there from South Ray Crater. The trouble was, most everything looked the same to the astronauts. But they kept digging and raking, and finally, John stumbled across a white crystalline rock, which Houston believed was from Descartes. Boy, Charlie, look at this rock. That has got to be planted. What about did you find it, John? Right down there, and that, and that, oh, yeah. and all that white rock. Uh, look at these little crystals in it. Oh, that couldn't be. A big white angular rock. And it's, uh, but the, all the crystals in it are very small. The rock had tiny crystals in it like sugar and appeared to be made entirely of plagioclase, a calcium feldspar mineral much like the so-called Genesis rock found by the Apollo 15 crew on the Hadley Apennine site. John named it the Great Young. Houston was delighted. After sampling around Station 5 and taking more photographs, they drove west to Station 6 at the base of Stone Mountain on its lowest terrace, near a blocky crater. At each stop, Charlie gave Mission Control a status report on the rover and their suits and portable life support system. The rover was performing superbly and using much less energy than had been estimated. At Station 6, the astronauts were told to look for rounded rocks rather than angular ones. Working on the hypothesis that angular rocks on the surface were likely to be fragments of South Ray ejecta, while rounded rocks might be samples of the Descartes formation. When they jumped out of the rover, they noticed a real difference in the regolith, or surface. Because we just uh, sort of bounced here. Yeah, it's a lot more... Uh... Tony, uh, the regolith character, John said, it's really changed. Okay, let me get the... When we walk, we don't bounce as much. I mean, we don't sink in as much. 
John and Charlie weren't making footprints at all now, and they could feel the hard rock underneath their feet. Charlie had a hammer in his hand and beat on a big boulder, breaking off a chunk. This discovery was exciting to the moonwalkers. It turned out to be a very productive area of fine-grained crystalline rock. They were quite hard, unlike the friable samples higher up the mountain. They also collected several rusty-looking rocks with brown stains on their surfaces. These were exciting finds because the rusty appearance suggested the presence of hydrated oxides of iron. Hydrated meant water, and the scientists had a serious interest in anything that could mean water had existed or even still existed on the moon. Unfortunately, they only had 20 minutes at Station 6. Okay, that's the rolling time. It's time to load up right now. Okay. The astronauts now raced around trying to get finished. As John jogged in graceful leaps, he commented, All right, this is a neat way to travel. Isn't it great? I like to, I like to skip along. But me, boy. Uh, Charlie, you're pure great. Okay. Or well, whatever you call it. <laughs> okay. I can't get my left leg in front of me. Uh, the doc's never knew. John got in his side of the rover, but Charlie decided to show off a bit by making a jump into his seat. Unfortunately, he got hooked on something and fell down again. It was really quite embarrassing, and John saw the whole thing. He offered to help Charlie up, but Charlie insisted he could make it on his own. John really didn't like it when Charlie fell down like that. First of all, he was concerned about his safety. Second, it took time for him to get up and dust off, and time was running out. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 364 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 16, Moonwalk 2, Evidence of Water. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released on May 27th. 
If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 189 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, how about some afterthoughts? Shortly after I released the previous episode, I heard the sad news that Mike Collins had passed away. He made it 90 years and certainly had a well-spent, worthwhile life. He had two NASA flights, Gemini 10, and the most famous flight of all, Apollo 11, where he served as command module pilot. If you'd like to learn more about him, I did his biography several years ago on episode number 203. Mike Collins, a great person and astronaut who will be missed. Now, how would you like to go to the moon and climb Stone Mountain with a rover? The slope was 20 to 22 degrees going up to Station 4. I imagine under those conditions, it would be a little concerning. What if the rover lost its grip or got twisted sideways and rolled over? More than likely, it would be mission over if that happened. Now consider how it would be going down the slope. John didn't particularly trust the brakes on the rover at first, but during the downward slope, he did gain some confidence. And they made comments like, I sure am glad I didn't see the slope like this when we were going up. (laughs) But one thing is for sure, Charlie had a good time. (laughs) You know, I I think I've told you before, I got to meet Charlie and shake his hand, and he just seemed like a super fun guy. And based on my research, he definitely was. He just seems to have so much energy. He's always doing something extracurricular, I guess you could phrase it that way. I noticed he falls down a lot, too. (laughs) He tries things maybe he shouldn't try, or he gets a little distracted. Now, John is the commander, and as such, he is responsible for the lives under his command, so he really doesn't like it. When Charlie falls down or does something extracurricular, it seems Charlie gets to be the comedian while John has to be the straight man. Now, in comparing what John wrote about Station 4 versus what Charlie wrote, I was reminded again history is a lot about perspective. John said Station 4 was not that difficult to work at, even with the slope. He wrote their heartbeats never got over 90 beats per minute. On the other hand, Charlie wrote 
that Station 4 was the most difficult stop they made during their whole stay on the moon. He said he was pooped after Station 4. Same place, the same working conditions, but two distinctly opposite opinions. I guess it's all about perspective. Now, did you remember that Apollo 16 found some evidence of water on the moon? I did not. Isn't that a fantastic discovery? Of course, now we firmly believe there is water ice on the moon in various locations. But how about that Apollo 16 in 1972 finding that evidence? Pretty impressive. And finally, for those interested in the farm project, we successfully moved, I guess you realize that from the salutation, <laughs> we successfully moved the camper to the farm on April 29th, and we got power, water, and sewer hooked up the day we moved. So we had the necessities on move day, no problem. We did not have the internet. So for the next four or five days, we lived off cell phone internet, which meant 3G speed, which wound up being 400 to 500K download. Then, one rainy day, Spectrum Internet was installed. <laughs> I had to help the guy figure out where his connection box was, but we found it. He eventually strung the cable over to the camper and got me hooked up. So, what's the first thing you do when you get internet hooked up? You run speed test. I ran it, and I was jumping around like Charlie. I got 232 megabits down and 11.5 up. I want you to know, I have never had anywhere near that speed. I got about 30 down at the uh, old house. 50 on a good day. Nothing close to 232. <laughs> so I am in the camper rejoicing. And the installer is looking at me snickering and probably wondering what's wrong with me. Well, anyway, we have internet and are fully functional at the farm now. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had a nine contributions and increases, and I would like to thank Richard C., who donated at the Orion level, Gagan S. donated at the Apollo level, Chris N. from the UK donated at the Apollo level and earned an alien emoji. Christopher L. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a galaxy emoji. David S. from the UK donated at the Mercury level. Richard P. from the Sidlaw Foothills of Scotland, the gateway to the Scottish Highlands, donated at the Mercury level. Cameron B. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a galaxy emoji. Matthew G. from Rhode Island donated at the Vostok level and earned a rocket emoji. 
and Molly pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Our total Patreon donors are at 253, with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of last year. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 340, and our goal is to reach 500 by the end of 2021. If you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruptions, please consider going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. Our personal project is moving slowly but surely. We've had several neighbors just stop by and say hello, and that's been really nice. Boy, clearing this land is a big task, and we are constantly uncovering trash and glass amid the roots and the stones. So uh, it's going to be a a little more work (laughs) to get it ready for seeding, but, you know, that's coming, that's coming. You know, I, I was nicely surprised with the Internet service we got out here. That has been a relief to be able to have good service for a change. Now, for the SRH drawing. The winner for this episode will get the choice of a Space Rocket History magnet or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or the SRH archive magnet or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Zach White. Zach White, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 340 of you who contributed thus far in 2021. And rest in peace, Mike Collins. You were a great one. My sources for this episode were NASA, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, Apollo 16 Mission Report, the Apollo 16 Timeline, Apollo 16 Lunar Surface Journal, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode number 365 posted by May 27th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.